You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of May 11th, 2023. I'm Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Consider a trail in or around Jefferson County for Mother's Day by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Lakewood Mom takes to social media for hashtag here for the kids movement by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. The world's their oyster. Wilchester Elementary School students host annual Multicultural Night by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Suspect arrested in connection with RV homicide near Golden by Deb Hurley Brobst for the Golden Transcript. Arvada Man and Woman of the Year, Randy and Christy Michaelis by Philanthropic couple honored for service to Arvada's underserved communities by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Consider a trail in or around Jefferson County for Mother's Day by Joe Davis. The weather is finally warm and the beauty of the state is on display. Instead of leaving mom hanging after a heavy Mother's Day brunch, consider hiking a trail in or around Jefferson County. There are 261 trails crossing the county as a part of the Jefferson County Open Spaces System, according to the JCOS website. A total of 262 miles of trails, many of which connect to longer regional trail systems outside of the county. Some are easily paved jaunts along the county's many waterways and parks. Others require good shoes and some minor pieces of gear. The trails Jeffco has to offer are as diverse as a box of Mother's Day chocolates. You can't just open the box and start eating. That may lead to a bite into unsavory candy. Picking a trail is the same. It's not wise to just pull up to a trail and start walking. You may end up in a 26-mile hiking-only space that is unpaved. Fortunately, the JCOS offers resources to help the public scout a trail before they embark. It's easy and can be done at the brunch table. The website has an interactive chart that allows users to isolate trails for specific information. Find out how long the trail is, its difficulty level, and its usage hiking only or friendly to horses and motor vehicles. An overhead relief map also shows altitude changes and connections to other trails. Pick a trail on the website and get directions to it in minutes on the JCOS website. Be careful to consider all the information before you go off on any trail. For example, the Cynical Trail, a part of the Cathedral Spires Park Trails, is short, about a mile. It's also located in Pine, Colorado, and is rated one of the most difficult hiking-only trails. That may seem exciting, but JCOS has more information on the hiking trail page. The entire park is closed until July 31st to protect nesting raptor birds, also known as birds of prey. Raptors are the owls, hawks, eagles, and kestrels that live in Colorado. Check the trail thoroughly before setting out. A good trail to try is the 32nd Street Trail at Prospect Park in Wheat Ridge. The trail is about three miles long, is paved, and accommodates bikes, wheelchairs, walkers, runners, and others. It's a multi-use trail that is rated one of the least difficult by the JCOS. It's quick and allows for a leisurely Sunday stroll. Few considerations while on the trail... There are a few things to consider before heading out, heading off on a trail. Colorado Parks and Wildlife Public Information Officer Bridget O'Rourke 
recently reminded readers that baby animals and their mothers are out and about in Jeffco. The JCOS also has a reminder that it is spreading to the public through social media. Stay on the trails. The unpaved trails may be muddy from the weather. However, avoiding the mud and water ends up widening the trail, damaging the surrounding plant life. The JCOS post says this trail leads this to leads to trail widening, erosion, and habitat loss for the surrounding area. To combat this, they advise the public to remember to always walk through muddy sections rather than around or avoid muddy trails altogether and choose another trail or park. Consider exploring the beauty of this of space. This Mother's Day, take mom for a nice hike, a healthy and happy alternative to the empty post-brunch Sunday. Liquid Mom takes to social media for hashtag here for the kids movement by Joe Davis. Liquid Mom, Wolf Terry, posted a map of her neighborhood, which included 12 gun stores in the vicinity of her house. During the video post, she also pointed out how close one store is to the local elementary school. Terry used the video on TikTok and Instagram to promote the movement, hashtag here, the number four, the kids, and the desire to see the ban of guns, especially assault rifles, in the state of Colorado. Here for the Kids is a grassroots movement by mothers to end gun violence in Colorado schools. The group will come together in a sit-in style protest June 5th to urge Governor Jared Polis to ban and buy back guns in Colorado. Terry says her video was one of the many calls to action that she has made for moms in the area. Her specific target? White moms. Here for the Kids is led by black women, Tina Strawn, Cyril Rao, and Maisha Hill. Strawn released a video where she states, quote, Our ancestors and the black leaders of the civil rights movement gave us the blueprint. She goes on to tell the white women of the movement, This is your Selma. According to Terry, Strawn is referring to the March 1965 civil rights movement protest in Selma, Mississippi. Bloody Sunday happened. White women heard about it. They said black men and black women should not be brutalized for our right to vote. White women got on buses. They went down to Selma. Things changed. Terry added that white women of Jefferson County are being asked to show up for a specific reason. Because we have the most amount of privilege, Terry said, and it's about time we show up for something. She said that privilege will change the way that this anti-gun violence movement is treated. Primarily, black BIPOC movements are being brutalized rather than being listened to, Terry said. Hashtag here for the kids will meet up on May 17th at Evans High School in Denver for sign making, education, and more. This event is a preparation of sorts for the June 3rd sit-in protests planned for the Capitol Hill building. For more information, follow hashtag here, the number four, the kids on social media and the movement's website for more information. Terry is the sole Lakewood area contact at press time. Follow her on social media for updates. The world's their oyster. Welchester Elementary School students host annual multicultural night by Corinne Westerman. Dancing from Mexico, food from Lebanon, stories from Russia, flower necklaces from Micronesia. For Welchester Elementary School students and their families, the world was at their fingertips during the school's annual multicultural night on April 27th. The entire school participated as the older grades hosted exhibits in their classrooms and the younger students completed class projects beforehand. Additionally, the school hosted a buffet-style dinner with Chinese, Mexican, Italian, and Lebanese foods. Folklorico dancers, a youth and mariachi band, and other games and crafts. 
Overall, organizers said at least 10 cultures were represented. That doesn't account for the second graders, though, who each picked a country to research. Multicultural Night has become the school's most popular event, drawing more than 300 attendees this year. ESL teacher Sari Warburton-Pitt described how the event used to be formatted differently, and most participants were ESL students and families. She added how the school wanted to draw more attendees, but, quote, didn't want the students to feel like they had to present on their own culture, which would require more work. But this arrangement, now in its fourth year, makes Multicultural Nights more of a school or community-wide effort. Everyone does something, she said, explaining how local businesses donated food, the staff and students prepared the exhibits and decor, and the families showed their support by attending. Multicultural Nights features a different group of dancers each year. This time, Edgewater Elementary School's Folklorico Club dancers gave their first performance at Welchester. Multicultural Night also hosted a mariachi band for the first time. The Colorado Youth Mariachi Program's intermediate-level group, Mariachi Corazon Alegre, performed for a half-hour toward the end of the night. Victor Becerra, who led the group, said the Colorado Youth Mariachi Program has performed at similar events before at schools and libraries. He felt that the Welchester families made for a good crowd, saying he'd be happy to return for another multicultural night. Suspect arrested in connection with RV homicide near Golden by Deb Hurley Brobst. A suspect has been arrested in connection with a homicide discovered last month in the Woolly Mammoth Park and Ride near Golden. Donald Leroy Harris, 50, is facing a first-degree murder charge. The victim, Matthew Heyer, 57, from Denver, was found dead of a gunshot wound in his RV. A Jefferson County Sheriff's deputy was doing a routine patrol of the lot, which is along US-40 near the Interstate 70 Morrison exit, at around 3.45 p.m. on April 14th. The deputy saw Hire's RV door swinging open, went to check it, and found his body inside. At that time, the sheriff's office said it appeared to be a targeted attack, so investigators didn't believe there was a threat to the public. According to Carlin Tilly with the Jeffco Sheriff's Office, investigators found documents belonging to Harris inside the victim's RV. Harris was also the last person seen with hire. The Sheriff's Office believes the murder took place between March 25th and 26th. Subsequently, on March 26th, the Golden Police Department arrested Harris on outstanding warrants out of Denver. At that time, there was no knowledge of his connection to hire, Tilly said. However, Harris has remained in Denver's custody where JCSO served him with the murder charge. Tilly said Harris' belongings, which were collected when he was arrested in March, have become critical pieces of evidence in the murder investigation. She said the sheriff's office found the victim's cell phone and keys to the victim's RV, plus the victim's blood was found on the suspect's clothing. Additionally, Tilly said the suspect was in possession of the victim's Jeep at the time of his arrest. The murder weapon was found inside the Jeep, which contained DNA from the suspect and the victim. Arvada Man and Woman of the Year, Randy and Christy Michaelis. Philanthropic couple honored for service to Arvada's underserved communities by Riley Dunn. When Christy and Randy Michaelis moved to Arvada in 2010, they simply wanted to help people. The, at the time, recently retired couple had just moved from Michigan and stopped by the Apex Center for the volunteer fair. Before long, the Michaelis' next chapter began to take shape. We didn't know a soul, not one single person, when we moved to town, Christy said. And so we went to a volunteer fair to try to figure out how we could plug in at Apex. And I'm like, let's sign up here. Let's sign up here. I look back and I'm seeing Christy putting her name down on every volunteer list all the way up and down, Randy said. 
And I was like, I'm going to be painting fingernails. 13 years and many thousands of volunteer hours later, Randy and Christy have been named the 2022 Arvada Man and Woman of the Year by the Arvada Chamber of Commerce for their invaluable service to the community. The Michaelis philanthropic resume could likely fill the press pages, but highlights include work with Community Table to serve the Elevado Estates Mobile Home Park, working with court-appointed special advocates, CASA, volunteering with WizKids and helping out at multiple programs at their church, Arvada Vineyard Church. While the couple usually serves the community together, they also pursue their own special interests as well. Chrissy is a volunteer with the local Optimist Club, and Randy has given his time to Apex as a tennis pro and to residents of a local apartment complex who faced eviction. By recognizing the unsung heroes in our community through the Man and Woman of the Year Award, we celebrate the often overlooked individuals who make a significant difference in the lives of others. Cami Welch, President and CEO of the Arvada Chamber of Commerce, said, Christy and Randy Michaelis are the epitome of this award. It is through their selflessness and dedication that our community thrives and grows, and it is an honor to recognize them for their invaluable contributions, Welch continued. The Michaelis didn't quite believe it at first. It's still really humbling, Christy said of the award. We really are quite surprised. Community Table CEO Sandy Martin said that the Michaelis headed up the program with Elevato, which has grown to include a mobile food pantry, free bicycles and lessons, and an annual summer sports and activities camp. They're an incredible couple that just have a, such a big heart and such a love for this community to help those folks that find themselves in a tough position, Martin said. With us, they're very involved in a mobile home food pantry at the Elevato Trailer Home Community. We order special foods that are culturally appropriate for those families. The Michaelis come in and other volunteer members and pack boxes and distribute them. They're very involved with that community in terms of what they do, Martin said. Really, truly wonderful folks. Christy said that when the couple started volunteering at Elevato, many of the trailers had been condemned and the community was in a state of disrepair. In addition, the locals were skeptical of volunteers. When we first started going there, the kids would come out and you'd see the parents and grandparents like peeking through the windows. Like, who are these people? Christy said. And now we're like the go-to people. Christy added that about a half of the families that lived at Elevato 13 years ago are still there, pointing to the stability of the community. Around 10 years ago, I was blessed with the presence of Christy and Randy and their dedication to helping the community. Veronica Dominguez, a resident of Elevato, said. The help always came in various forms, such as bringing the food back to distribute food, the summer activities that they would plan out months ahead, or the constant reminder that they were always available to help. Randy said that one of his proudest moments working at Elevato has been to watch a young girl named Alejandra rise above her circumstances and become one of the first youngsters from the community to go to college. Alejandra was president of her class. We got to see her play volleyball. She applied for a Gates Foundation scholarship, Randy said, and she got it. She moved away, but her family's trailer is still there, and she comes back every once in a while to see the kids and see us. She was our model for an activity called Dream Boards. She didn't let her circumstances confine her. One of the Dream Boards, as an annual activity the couple engages local children in so that they can learn more about their dreams, Randy said that he reminds kids about Alejandra's story and added that she's become something of an aspirational figure for the community. Dominguez said that it might not be too surprising that the Michaelis are humbled by the award. I sit back and think that there is often a need to flaunt the help that is one has done for a community to feel better about oneself, Dominguez said. Never have I seen this with Christy and Randy. Their selflessness goes beyond anyone I have ever met. They do everything, not only out of kindness, but out of sincerity. 
It is in their nature to help and better the world around them. When asked how they know a cause is worth supporting, Randy said, your heart just gets heavy. The McKellis are gearing up for this summer's sports camp at Alavado, but said that once that's wrapped up, they'd like to do some traveling, something they've had little time to do. Christy added that when they're back, she hopes to construct a community garden at Elevato in the near future. The McKellis will be honored at the Arvada Chamber of Commerce 72nd Annual Awards Luncheon from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. on May 17th at the Arvada Center Event Spaces. Three suspects in rock-throwing homicide face 13 charges. Trio of 18-year-olds suspected of killing Alexa Bartel are being held without bail by Riley Dunn. The three 18-year-olds suspected of killing Alexa Bartel during a rock-throwing rampage on April 19th were officially charged by the Office of First Judicial District Attorney on May 3rd. The trio faced 13 charges, including first-degree murder and assault, and are being held without bond. 20-year-old 20-year-old Arvada resident Bartell was driving northbound along Indiana Street when a rock crashed through her windshield and sent her vehicle hurtling from the roadway. Bartell was talking to a friend on the phone at the time and was found dead when she, when the friend traced her location. Nicholas Carroll Chick, Joseph Koenig, and Zachary Quack all faced the same 13 charges. One count of murder in the first degree, six counts of criminal attempt to commit murder in the first degree, three counts of assault in the second degree, and three counts of criminal attempt to commit assault in the first degree. The three suspects appeared in court at 1 p.m. on May 3rd for the return filing of charges. Local Voices Protecting Consumers Tackling High Utility Bills Guest Column Lisa Cutter and Chris DeGroy Kennedy. Earlier this year, we heard from constituents that their monthly utility bills went up astronomically. The amounts were shocking and created real difficulties for people struggling to keep up with food, rent, and other necessities. And this didn't just impact our homes and apartments. Our places of worship, our local shops, our schools and hospitals, all of the important community institutions and businesses across Jefferson County were also faced with these dramatic increases in their bills. In response, we launched a special committee at the Capitol to hear from experts on what was driving these costs and what we could do at the legislature to protect consumers in the future. Based on the testimony we heard from experts over the course of three committee hearings, we introduced legislation that will address some of the waste, inefficiencies, and high costs that made heating and powering our homes and businesses so expensive this winter. SB 23291 will ensure that ratepayers won't have to pay for utility expenses that have nothing to do with providing a safe, reliable heat and electricity. Currently, things like lobbying expenses, political donations, tax penalties, and promotional marketing are paid for you by you. Utilities are natural monopolies, so ratepayers shouldn't be paying for purely brand-building ads. The bill also raises the bar for the level of detail that investor-owned utilities like Cell Energy need to provide to regulators when they're arguing to raise your rates. We rely on the Public Utilities Commission, PUC, to review proposals from utilities that will impact our bills and ensure all proposed increases are reasonable and legitimate. But that can be difficult when utilities don't always provide all of the data and assumptions they are using to justify the requested rate increase. Our bill will create a more thorough and transparent process, allowing regulators to more quickly and efficiently understand the impacts to ratepayers and better evaluate the legitimacy of the proposed increases. Our bill will also better align the interests for of for-profit utilities with the interests of energy consumers. Utilities like Excel do not make any money off the cost of the fuel they purchase to heat our homes. So if the cost of gas, the most commonly used, goes up by 40%, like it did this winter, 
they pass that cost on to us dollar for dollar. As a result, they have no financial incentive to seek ways to reduce these prices, price spikes, or even better, to reduce our reliance on volatile fuels, so we're not exposed to big hikes to begin with. Our bill sets up strategies to ensure the risk is shared, giving utilities a financial incentive to better manage these spikes in cost by hedging and building out energy storing capacity. It also better aligns our major utility re to reduced waste and increased efficiencies in the system, some of the simplest and cheapest ways to save consumers money. Finally, our bill ensures that our regulators are identifying and stopping wasteful new gas investments that may take 50 years to pay off, but will be turned off in the next 20 years to meet our climate goals. Ratepayers should not be on the hook to pay for something until 2075 that is no longer providing their power. These unacceptably high utility bills this winter affected all of us. But SB 23291 will protect consumers and reduce bills in the future. We already have the tools to reduce waste, increase efficiency, and save people money. Our bill ensures we use more of those tools in the interest of our families and our community. Soil Health at Chatfield Farms, guest column by Rudger Myers. Farmers do everything. They are mechanics, botanists, naturals, naturalists, athletes, and some even believe themselves to be meteorologists. In the age of the regenerative agricultural movement, farmers need to become biologists, or more specifically, soil ecologists. Soil ecology is the study of the seemingly limitless universe beneath our feet. In just a teaspoon of healthy soil, there are over one billion bacterial individuals and more than six miles of fungal mycelium. It could take seven years to recite the names of all the bacterial species in a compost pile. How do the trillions of soil microbes interact? It's likely we'll never know. A broad understanding of the soil ecosystem, however, can change a farmer's mindset. The most productive soil in the world, from an old-growth forest, contains far less plant-available nutrients than are recommended for agricultural soil. How could nutrient-deficient soil, teeming with soil microbes, produce the largest plants on the planet? Nutrients are released when microscopic predators consume bacteria. Nematodes, protozoa, and microscopic insects poop out nutrients that plants are able to consume. Plant roots absorb those nutrients through a web of fungi. Fungal networks expand the reach of roots and create highways inside root hairs. As satisfied plants then release exudates, which attract more bacteria and fungi, the cycle continues. Without these characters to play their parts, soil turns into a lifeless dirt. Conventional soil management has disrupted the soil ecosystem. Without microscopic predators, bacteria, or fungi to assist plant roots, farmers are forced to overfeed plants with fertilizers. The excess nutrients that aren't washed away are consumed by a monoculture of bacteria reproducing rapidly and unchecked by predators. Without predators to consume bacteria, the soil ecosystem becomes unbalanced. The resulting population of disease-causing bacteria release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Realistically, not all farmers have the time to study microscopy. Through the eyes of a microscope, a farmer can witness the soil ecosystem in action. But studying soil ecology doesn't require a microscope. Diversity in critters, worms, ladybugs, roly-polies, etc. is an indication of a balanced biology. Even without a microscope, understanding what healthy soil looks, feels, and smells like can inform better practices. Undisturbed soil will evolve with its plant inhabitants. Rich, brown, textured soil that smells like a forest 
will feed a vegetable plant on its own without nutrient additives. A calculated less is more soil management approach gives our soil a chance to breathe. Regenerative agriculture redefines the farmer's relationship with nature. Humans' senses have evolved with plants. The smell of healthy soil triggers serotonin production in the human brain. Alternatively, our negative reaction to the putrid smell of greenhouse gases produced by harmful bacteria warns us of toxicity. These fine-tuned, deep intuitions can become regenerative farmers' almanac. By working in tandem with natural soil ecosystems, farmers can reduce the labor and expenses of disruptive soil tillage and chemical fertilizer application. Soil naturally wants to grow plants. By accepting help from nature, farmers can grow healthier plants more efficiently. Rutger Myers is a soil health technician for the Denver Botanic Gardens. A Summer of Musical Adventure at the Arvada Center. Coming Attractions by Clark Reader. Over the years, the Arvada Center's summer concert series has consistently proven itself to be a true gem of the summer. It's like your favorite neighborhood spot has thrown open its doors for a few hundred friends to get together and hear some great music. As it gears up for its 2023 season, that feeling is even stronger and more appreciated by audiences, as Philip C. Sneed, president and CEO of the center, can attest. Concerts are back in full force after the pandemic, he said. We're so pleased with the acts we have this year, which includes some returning favorites and some that have never been here before. The initial wave of concerts at the Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard, is June 3rd. Denver Gay Men's Chorus. Divas. Icons and Justice Warriors. June 24th, the Denver Brass, In Pursuit of Leisure. June 30th, A Night at the Movies with the Colorado Symphony. July 3rd, Toad the Wet Sprockets with special guest Cracker. July 7th, Indigo Girls with Full Band and Garrison Star. July 15th, Colorado Jazz Repertory Orchestra. July 21st, George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Bad all over the world. 50 years of rock tour. July 28th, Mozart's Under the Moonlight with the Colorado Symphony. July 29th, Face Vocal Band. August, 20, August 12th, Boz Skaggs. August 13th, Ben Folds. September 8th, Keb Moe. There will also be some special performances that haven't been announced yet. Longtime attendees may notice the center is pulling more well-known national acts in the last years, and Sneed attributes this to steady growth in the venue's reputation. Even a few years ago, I don't think we would have been able to get some of these acts, he said. A big part of it is the venue, which feels intimate but still has a lot of seats. Word is getting around about how great a place the center is. The variety of performers allows music fans to indulge in any style they like, and local favorites like the Colorado Symphony and Colorado Jazz Repertory Orchestra are always exploring new ways to draw listeners in, like performing selections from popular film scores. The center itself is also a key factor in what makes seeing a performance so special. There are art shows at the indoor galleries and students all over the place taking a variety of arts classes. I love the energy here, and the concerts allow people to experience that energy, Sneed said. I love sitting outside and listening to the music and seeing people lighting up for their favorite artists. It's just a great place to be. For information and tickets, visit arvadacenter.org slash music hyphen and hyphen dance slash summer hyphen concerts. Find the best food of the year at City Park farmer's market. There are many signs that summer is officially back, but one of the most exciting for those looking for delicious foods is the return of City Park Farmer's Market, 2551 East Colfax Avenue in Denver, which opens for the season on Saturday, May 13th. Now in its third season, the event features more than 100 local producers, demos from Colorado chefs, and much more. 
Check out the market from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. through Saturday, October 13th. According to provided information, the owners prioritize, quote, vendors who source from and collaborate with other local businesses. Find all the necessary information at cityparkfarmersmarket.com. Go on a magical adventure with El Espiritu Natural. The plot of Su Teatro's El Espiritu Natural, The Spirit of Nature, sounds straight out of classic Disney. Sisters Nida Luna and Nelda Rio face off against the absence, which, according to provided information, is, quote, an overpowering, memory-reducing force that threatens their history, traditions, and very existence. The story also features appearances by La Yarona Ejacatl and Barack Obama. This transporting show will appear at North Glen's Parsons Theater, 1 East Memorial Parkway at 7 p.m. on Friday, May 12th, and 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th. Information and tickets can be found at northglenarts.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Caroline Polacek at Mission Ballroom. It is always fun to trace a performer's arc, especially when you get to see them really grow into themselves. That's the case with Caroline Polacek, who first who formed her first band, Charlift, while a student at the University of Colorado Boulder. When I first wrote about her all the way back, kidding, in 2021, she was playing the Bluebird, and then she opened for Dua Lipa at Ball Arena last year. And now in support of her fantastic sophomore album, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You. She's headlining Mission Ballroom, 4242 Winecoop Street in Denver. Polacek will be performing at 8 p.m. on Sunday, May 14th, and she has a killer lineup joining her. Openers are indie rock legend Alex G and up-and-coming talent Indigo de Souza. This has the potential to be one of the show, season's best shows, so get tickets at axs.com. Clark Rhea's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at clarkwithane.reader at hotmail.com. Dip your pan into Clear Creek history at Phoenix Goldmine. The season has opened for gold panning, and you can keep what you find by Olivia Jewell Love. If you fancy yourself a modern-day prospector or just want to get in touch with the rich history of Clear Creek County, you could strike gold at the Phoenix Gold Mine in Idaho Springs. Phoenix Gold Mine Tours and Panning offers year-round tours of the underground mine and lessons on how to pan for gold. In the spring, participants can pan for gold in the Rocky Mountain Creek on site and keep what they find. It's naturally stocked with gold and minerals, according to owner David Mosh. People actually have, over the years, found substantial pieces, Mosh said. By substantial, he estimated pieces of gold that could fetch around $500. The mine, which has been family-owned since 1968, still has the permits and abilities to mine. Though Mosh explained his long lineage of prospectors fell more in love with the educational aspect of the mine. One thing led to another, and we started making more money showing people the mine than actually mining, he said. Phoenix Gold Mine estimates that it has produced over 100,000 troy ounces, the system of weights for precious metals and gems, of gold. Mosh estimated that Idaho Springs has produced a million troy ounces of gold, but not much since the 1950s. According to Mosh, the old folk story of how panning for gold came to be comes from a man camping along a creekside. The story goes that he was scouring his pan with gravel from the creek, and as the rocks fell away, he was left with pieces of gold. The method has since been long since has long been one of the cheapest and most accessible ways to find gold. And at the Phoenix mine, you can still do it today. While much of the strike-it-rich gold is long gone with the Pikes Peak gold rush of the late 1800s, Mosh explained that many private streams, including the one on the property of the mine, will continue to have gold for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. As long as the mountain slowly runs away, 
a little bit of gold dust comes off the hillside, he said. So while you may only find some flakes, you can join the long-standing history of mining and panning in the county still today. Tours of the Phoenix Gold Mine are open year-round, seven days a week. The mine offers online reservations, but also accepts walk-ups when available. The mine is family and dog-friendly and does book school trips and does school trips. Learn more and book online at phoenixgoldmine.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Helping Neighbors Celebrate with Culturally Responsive Foods by the Food Bank of the, of the Rockies. From Denverite, I'll be reading What We Know About Denver's Response to More Migrant Arrivals and How Denverites Can Help by Rebecca Tauber. And Meet the Barber Giving Out Free Haircuts to Unhoused Denverites at Center, Civic Center Park by Isaac Vargas. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading, Cherry Creek Students' Parents Say Anti-Semitic Incidents Have Become Common by Taylor Shaw. And Douglas County Changes Fairgrounds Policy After Drag Show Backlash by Ellis Arnold. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Helping Neighbors Celebrate with Culturally Responsive Foods by the Food Bank of the Rockies. The holy month of Ramadan, which started May 22nd, is considered one of the most joyous times of the year for the more than 70,000 Muslims in Denver. During Ramadan, community members of the Islamic faith typically fast during daylight hours, beginning their day with suhoor, morning meal, before the first prayer of the day and breaking their fast traditionally by eating dates before iftar, evening meal, which is normally eaten with friends and family. Eid al-Fitar, meaning festival of breaking the fast, is the most important holiday that follows the month of Ramadan. It is a time for great feasts, the giving of gifts to children, and spending time with friends and family. The celebration often includes a variety of traditional foods, including baklava, stuffed dates, kanafa, and many other foods. However, finding the ingredients and foods to make these dishes in Denver can be especially difficult if you're on a limited budget or you've seen your SNAP benefits reduced. Food Bank of the Rockies Culturally Responsive Food Initiative works to overcome access barriers to important ingredients and foods experienced by clients from diverse cultural backgrounds. The program collects demographic information and feedback on food preferences from clients, partners, and cultural community organizations to develop food lists specific to the different populations served by the food bank. To ensure Denver's Muslim community is able to celebrate Ramadan with the types of foods that are traditionally associated with it, Food Bank of the Rockies sources several items to make available to hunger relief partners like the downtown Denver Islamic Center. These foods included halal chicken drumsticks, dried dates, raisins, almonds, pistachios, honey, minced garlic, and more. Throughout the year, in addition to sourcing specific items for holidays such as Ramadan, Food Bank of the Rockies operates 30 culturally responsive mobile pantries in Colorado and three in Wyoming and makes available as many culturally responsive food items as possible to hunger relief partners. Nourishing our communities means more than just putting food on plates, said Ashley Newell, manager of the Culturally Responsive Food Program at Food Bank of the Rockies. It means listening to our neighbors, respecting varying cultural values, and meeting those needs and desires to the best of our ability. The next two articles are from Denverite. What we know about Denver's response to more migrant arrivals and how Denverites can help, by Rebecca Tauber. On a Thursday morning at Denver's newly opened Migrant Reception Center, around 30 people stood in line waiting to register with city staff. Another 30 or so sat in two groups, one for people looking to travel elsewhere beyond Denver and another for people looking to stay. The majority of people we saw were waiting for bus tickets out of town. 
Tables full of granola bars, water bottles, and coloring pages and crayons for kids lined the room. For the second time in six months, the city of Denver has mobilized emergency operations for migrants arriving in the city from the border. Daily arrival numbers jumped back into triple digits, last seen in late December and early January. They had dropped back down to single and double digits the past few months. But a combination of better weather along the border and the expiration of the Trump-era Title 42, which allowed immigration officials to quickly expel migrants crossing the border without authorization, has sent those numbers up again. On Wednesday, 286 people arrived in Denver. Here's what we know about how Denver is responding to new arrivals across city departments and working with private partners. When migrants arrive, the city directs them to the reception center. There, people split between those looking to stay in the city and those looking to travel elsewhere. Like earlier this year, Denver is buying people bus tickets to other U.S. cities. The city did not say how many tickets it has purchased in recent days, but Denver Human Services estimates that the city has paid for around 4,100 since January. But even those moving on to other cities often need a place to stay for a night or two until their departure something that's causing a headache for city officials and has them calling on private partners to offer shelter space. Denver is currently operating five shelters with private partners. City officials say about 1,000 people are staying in those now and that they are over capacity. Unlike in December and January, the city is not using rec centers for housing, and Mayor Michael Hancock said the city is not planning to use rec centers that way at the moment. After leaving partner shelters, People can either travel to other cities where they might have friends or family already living in the U.S. or work on establishing roots in Denver. Denver appears to have backtracked on a policy that would have restricted which migrants the city could shelter in order to get federal reimbursements. At a press conference Thursday, city officials said Denver is serving everyone who arrives in the city. In April, officials announced a new policy in which Denver would only offer emergency shelter and other services to people who had come in contact with Department of Homeland Security, DHS, officials, and thus had an alien number, a number, tracking their case in the immigration system. The policy came as a requirement for receiving federal reimbursement for emergency costs. Immigration advocates cautioned that the policy could lead to more people on the streets, but this week, Officials said the number of people arriving without A numbers is very small and that Denver is working with community partners to make sure the city can serve everyone. Funding Denver's emergency response remains an issue. So far, Denver's officials say the city has spent around $16 million coming from the general fund and various agencies. The city has also gotten at least $2.5 million from the state and Hancock said just about $909,000 in federal reimbursements. But city officials called for even more help Thursday. We don't have unlimited resources, said Chief Financial Officer Margaret Danuser. This is an unbudgeted situation for us, and so we are digging into the toolbox and, of course, reaching out to both the federal government and the state for additional resources that might be available. Like in December, Hancock called on stronger federal support and cautioned that the city was looking at service cuts. The mayor did not specify what those service cuts might look like, but added that Denver would not disrupt disrupt strategies to serve people experiencing homelessness. In D.C., Colorado Congresswomen Yadira Caraveo and Diana DeGette sent a letter to President Joe Biden pushing for more funding to support cities like Denver. It is vital that future rounds of funding are robust for both interior and border communities to, at minimum, reimburse communities such as Denver for the full cost of expenses incurred while responding to the influx of migrants, they wrote Thursday. Hancock also said Denver is trying to respond as best as it can with the effects of Title 42's expiration. We knew that this was going to expire in May. Most conventional wisdom said we were going to see an influx in June, he said. We didn't expect this early influx. Denise Chang has been working with migrants as the founder of Colorado Hosting Asylum Network, a nonprofit that has helped resettle some families in the area. She said she knew the city had been discussing more arrivals for months. 
I don't know how prepared you can be without knowing how many people are going to arrive and not having the funding to provide them, Chang said. So they, did they really know this was going to happen? Yes. Have they been planning for it? Yes. Does that mean that they can handle it? They're trying. Hancock said the best way for people to support migrants is with money. The mayor pointed people interested in donating to the Newcomers Fund, launched by Hancock and Governor Jared Polis in December. In an update, the city said two organizations will begin, begin accepting clothing and other physical donations in the coming days. The Denver Dream Center at 2165 Curtis Street will serve as the main donation site starting May 17th. The Potter's House of Denver on 9495 East Florida Avenue will also accept donations starting May 22nd, though anyone wanting to drop off goods will first have to set up a time with the organization by reaching out to donations at denvergov.org. Meet the Barber Giving Out Free Haircuts to Unhoused Denverites at Civic Center Park by Isaac Vargas. A tattoo that reads, Pray, Love, Forgive, is tattooed just above Cesar Polito's forehead. Polito is a barber that volunteers at Mutual Aid Monday dinners, giving out free haircuts to unhoused community members. His gold-plated teeth match the gold-colored clippers that he uses to cut hair at Denver's Civic Center Park. I'm making people feel better. I love that, Polito said. They could be going through the worst time in their life. They get a haircut and walk out of here feeling great. You feel me? That's the biggest thing for me. This October, Polito will reach a big moment for himself. Three years of sobriety. I used to be big on cocaine and Xanax. That was my big thing. Xanax to go to sleep, cocaine to stay up, Polito said. My wife was taking care of the kids all day, so when I got home, I felt like I needed to help. Polito was raised by his father and grandmother in South Central Los Angeles. At the age of 15, he moved to Florida to live with his mother shortly after his father was sent to prison. I was already deep in South Central LA, so it was like I brought everything I knew. Instead of what my mom wanted for us, a better life, I just chose to do dumb shit. Drinking, hanging out, skipping, gangs, all that stuff. As an adolescent, drugs, underage drinking, and instances of breaking and entering landed Polito on house arrest. My officer one day was like, yo, you need to do something with yourself or I'm going to send you back to jail, Polito said. I was already lining people up, saving some money so I could chip in, smoke a blunt. I'm cutting out the house right in the neighborhood. I went to barber school, and right about when I was finishing up, I got a case, and they ended up sending me to prison. Now 19, Polito says he wasn't allowed to cut hair in prison because of his gang affiliation. He also was smoking K2, a synthetic weed that doesn't show up on traditional drug tests that screen for marijuana. I was doing K2 and smoking cigarettes in there because if we pissed dirty, we'd get 60 days in the box, Polito said. So once I'm getting out, I still kind of had a habit. Polito ended up serving five years of a six-year sentence. Once he got out, an old friend had just opened up a barber shop and invited him to work for him. But you know, we were all hanging out and doing crazy stuff again and eventually doing drugs, Polito said. He ended up back in jail on his 30th birthday. I went like super nuts for my 30th and ended up in a mental hospital, Polito said. My wife was like, if you don't stay there more than the little time you're supposed to, you're not going to be able to be with your kids. So I got the help. I stayed there for like a week. That's when I really put my all into cutting hair. Looking to get away from the wrong crowds, Polito moved to Denver a little less than a year ago with his family. By the grace of God, we had a mutual friend that connected me with Cesar, said Derek Cruz, owner of Game 7 Barbershop, where Polito works. He landed at the shop, came in at the perfect time. We had a booth that was open, and it just played out perfectly. He's brought a whole other mentality that's helped us grow the shop and network. It's great. In the last six months, Polito has set up his own LLC, moved into an apartment in the Washington Park neighborhood, and voted for the first time with the help of state representative and former mayoral candidate Leslie Harrod at Hiawatha Davis Jr. Recreation Center on Election Day. He didn't think, having a felony, that he could vote, 
said Brittany Catalanis, founder of Denver-based company Be Connected. It's a profound impact in our city just by enabling someone to not just find a job, but Cesar became an LLC, a business owner. That's huge. And now he's volunteering. He's doing his thing. He's giving back. Catalanis first met Polito in October of 2022. Her company, Be Connected, works to address why people lose housing and create housing security for both renters and property owners. Pulido credits Catalanis for connecting him with resources across the city. She's been connecting me to everybody. She sent me the mutual aid and said, look, they need a barber, Pulido said. I got in contact with them. I told them I was bringing a chair, but they didn't realize I was bringing an actual barber chair. So when I brought that, they kind of freaked. That's the beauty of his chair, Catalina said. That chair starts a conversation and instantly makes someone feel beautiful. Housing and self-care are so interconnected. Polito said he likes being out there as a testimony for those going through their own tough times and loves being part of the Mutual Aid Monday community. I'm here to do what I do. I love this, man, Polito said. I feel like I'm in a position where I'm not doing too good either, but, you know, I want to give back with something I can. I'm just a barber trying to spread some love and help people out. He hopes that other barbers will come out and donate their time at events like Mutual Aid Mondays. Bringing everybody closer together, especially like people in high places, people in low places, bring them together, help each other out somehow. I want everybody to be able to call somebody when they need something. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Cherry Creek students' parents say anti-Semitic incidents have become common by Taylor Shaw. Swastikas etched on the bathroom walls. Students doing Hitler salutes. Pennies being thrown near Jewish students. And students telling Jewish people to go back to the gas chambers. These are some of the anti-Semitic experiences that students, parents, and teachers shared during the May 8th Cherry Creek School District Board of Education meeting. This is what's happening in the hallways of your schools, said resident Ricky Moore. Our kids do not feel safe. Our kids are scared to say they're Jewish for fear of retaliation. That is why we are here. This has to change, she added. Moore was among a crowded room of people who gathered at Cherokee Trail High School. Many described instances where students experienced anti-Semitism within Cherry Creek schools and expressed feeling unsafe. When Emily, a student at Campus Middle School, took the microphone, she described a time when another student said his brother and his friend told a Jewish kid to go back to the gas chambers. Being Jewish herself, Emily said it really affected her, and she asked why that was even said and why the boy was sharing it. In response, the boy said it did not even matter, she recalled. And that's where he was wrong, she said, explaining she has relatives who were in the Holocaust. So I spoke up once again, and I said, actually, it does matter, because I'm Jewish, and people shouldn't be saying anything like that. He opened his mouth and said, ew, then you should go back to the gas chambers too, she recalled. This left me scared to go back to school every single day from that point forward. The stories came a week after the principal of campus middle school, Lisa Stahl, sent a letter to families informing them the school received reports of students drawing swastikas following the school's Holocaust presentation on April 28th. This creates an unacceptable environment of intolerance and exclusion in our school community. When these events are reported to the administration, we address them immediately and those involved face disciplinary consequences, Stahl wrote. It was not mentioned in Stahl's letter how many students were involved or what disciplinary consequences the students faced. Lauren Snell, a public information officer for Cherry Creek Schools, said May 8th via email that due to privacy protections for students, she cannot go into details about student discipline. As soon as the school board learned about the anti-Semitic drawings over the weekend, administrators investigated and took immediate action. Any student found to be involved will face disciplinary consequences, Snell wrote. During the board meeting, Superintendent Christopher Smith addressed the incident and said students were drawing swastikas on other students. Administrators investigated the incident and took immediate action. 
Multiple students are facing disciplinary action, and any other students found to be involved will also face disciplinary consequences, Smith said. We do not tolerate hate in this district of any kind against any group. After Moore learned about the incident, she posted about it on her Facebook page on April 29th. Then she created an online letter to Smith that, according to the letter, has been signed by more than 250 people. In the letter, she wrote, What shocked me more than this incident was that when I posted it about it on my Facebook page, it took less than 24 hours for over 60 families from the district to write me and say that not only they support everything I said, but over one-third of them have had anti-Semitic incidents occur at the middle school and high school level this year alone. For example, she said a family told her that anti-Semitism and harassment is so constant that the mom has told her children not to tell anyone they're Jewish. 